Last week when we had such a fantastic weekend. How many were you with, of you were here Friday or Sunday or both? And it was so special. I really want to thank you for participating, but particularly thank all our volunteers that worked so hard at making the day so special. From the moms that had to bring the kids that had to sing in the choir and come for the rehearsals and uh, till the people that served the coffee and the tea on Friday after the service and people that helped on Sunday with the brides and everything. So won't you just give our community just a great round of applause and we appreciate the volunteers. And like they said, we've just been so blessed by your responses of late. We're breaking all our record numbers when it comes to people volunteering for things. And that's you. So well done. We so appreciate you. I think you can give yourself a good round of applause. If you haven't volunteered for anything, you're not allowed to applaud. So no, I'm kidding. But it's always wonderful to have opportunities. Um, then uh, just before, at the beginning of the service, before we actually started the service, for those of you that were on time, and uh, for those of you that will just pay attention after the service, we've been seeing some amazing thing happening in our reverb space, our young, young people, our youth, and they've actually been recording some songs and that they've written themselves, some new songs that they're writing, and we're just giving some airtime to that. It's been playing before the service and after the service. You can go onto our SoundCloud account, on SoundCloud, and then you can also download and listen to the songs there, and at due time we will release more of them, but it's so wonderful that our young people are being stirred in, in their passion for the Lord and for what He's doing among them, so we want to encourage and strengthen them in that. And then month of May for the last couple of years has been the month uh, 120 in our city where the churches come together and we uh, just share the same message over the months, and we just draw time to, for the scripture to draw us all together. And we part of Wanswane, so you would have seen the posters and things go up uh, around the, the, the building, and we're going to participate in that also this month in these various different initiatives. Uh, yesterday, there were many people across the city that prayed, and, and Jesus marches, and everything that happened, and across the country that happened, I was asked to speak at a prayer facility, uh, gathering in Centurion, and it's so wonderful to see the body of Christ come together in unity. And um, we need to do just more of that. So please support us in this time also as we will be part of the 120 initiative. We had a couple of weeks ago on a Wednesday, about 450 church leaders came and prayed and here in our building and prayed for our nation together. And it was a fantastic time and a fantastic morning of praying together. As the guy said on the announcements, we are preparing in our hearts for the election time that's coming up. And so next week, we're going to have a particular time where we invite you to wear the colors of the flag and just that we remember we are one nation. You know, during times of election, by definition, we get separated a little bit, don't we? There's, we vote for different parties, and it's so amazing, it's so wonderful that we live in a democratic nation, that we each have the privilege and the right to vote in whatever conviction and way we have, and, and we fully support that. And it's so important that we do that. But as Christians, we do that on the basis of understanding that there's something that we're more loyal to than even our own nation, and that's the kingdom of God. Now, being loyal to our nation is included for us in being loyal to the kingdom of God and being citizens of the kingdom. So therefore, we, we vote. We participate in the democratic process in our nation. But we always do it remembering that I'm part of the body of Christ. And in this body, there's people with different political convictions that will vote differently, that will have different expressions and different convictions. And that's great. But we're one body. The body of Christ, one body. And we want to celebrate, and we're one nation. 
And at the end of the day, when the elections is done, and when we've all voted, we're carrying on being one nation. We're not divided according to anything. We're one nation. And we want to celebrate that, our beautiful nation. So wear the colors of the flag next week. Come and celebrate together. And, and let's continue to put our nation before the Lord so that His will can be done. This week I want to share a message that we've entitled, Be Ready for the Display of God's Glory in South Africa. Can you say amen to that? Amen. Are you ready for a display of God's glory in our own nation? And we're trusting and we believe in God for that. And so this week and next week I'm going to talk about things that perhaps help us to discern and understand what to do in a time like this in an election. And some reference points for us as Christians that we can draw on during a time of election. Now, how many of you know that when you need to make a decision of any nature, what really helps to make a decision is if you know what the truth is. If you can be clear about what is true about something, it really helps to make a decision. I mean, think about it when you go buy a car. If you're going to go buy a car, you look at the specs, you try and get the best information you can. You, you speak to people, you try and find out what is the truth about the performance and the, and the reliability of this vehicle. Because if I know what the truth is, I, I can make a decision. If you're deciding to get married to somebody, how many of you know it helps to know the truth about that person? How much truth as you can get about that person, the better for you. If you, any decision, if you're going to start a new job, you want to know something about the, that company or that organization or that department that you're going to work for, you, and it really helps if you have trustworthy knowledge that's available to you, that you can say, this is true and I know it is true. So often when we make decisions, we call somebody that's had experience in that area or has been involved with something because we think they can give us trustworthy knowledge so that we can make a good decision. And the same as it is when we participate in political processes as a nation. When we come to, having the, to make the decisions as a nation and, and do anything, we need to know what is true. Truth really helps us make the best decisions. If it's really hard when we come to a place where we go, we don't know what really is true anymore. And this is the interesting world we live in today. 2016's Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year was the word post-truth. Saying that we're living in a world post-truth. Truth is no longer something that can be defined. Truth is no longer something that can be known. There is no truth. Is a growing feeling in this world. There's a guy by the name of Stephen Kobe, who's a comedian, does political satire. And he coined a word on his talk show, the word truthiness. And he says, in the world nowadays, people don't really care so much about the truth. They care more about truthiness. Truthiness is, does something sound true? Does it appear to be true? Can I sell it as the truth? How do I make something appear truthful? Whether it really is truthful or not is not that important, but does it carry the weight of appearing to be true? And so in our world now with, with, with the media and social media and so many instruments available to us, We've become really skilled at selling something and making things appear to be truthful. Fake news. Fake news is an instrument that people use to make something look like it's true. So that when people make their choices, they think they're doing it based on good, solid information. But actually, it's fake news. How many of you have fallen prey to fake news? Oh, you don't have to put up your hand. I know it's embarrassing. 
How many of you have ever passed on something on a WhatsApp group or on social media because you, it really looked true? And, and you sent on an article or a, or a something and a message and you sent it on and then one of your beloved friends sent back to you and say, uh, <clears throat> sorry, uh, this is fake news. You know, and then we all feel embarrassed and I don't know what the excuses you offer at that point, you know, when you've passed on something. But we know it so well now. We, we don't even trust news outlets anymore so, as we used to. Because we think, is this really true? Is this somebody's perspective? Is this somebody's agenda that they're pushing? What is really true? So we live in interesting times, and we have to make decisions all the time. We have to make big decisions as a nation. And for us to make good decisions, it really helps if we know what is truth. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about today. And take us back to a confrontation around the same things as you and I are confronted with that happened 2,000 years ago. I'm so appreciative of the fact that I get to daily interact with ancient text. I know many people think ancient text is past. It's gone. It's done. It has nothing to say. We live in a modern civilization, new education. We don't need... But I'm so glad that I can read the Bible. Because you know, when I read the Bible, not only is the Bible eternal in, the, in, its, in, its, in what it says, in its truth, but it also helps me because sometimes I read things and I go, mm, I thought it was only going on today. Meanwhile, this is nothing new. You know the Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. I'm starting to really believe that scripture. Pray for me, I'll, I'll get there. But it's like you read the scriptures and you go, wow, that's the same as what I'm experiencing. And what I want to share with you today is some of what we're experiencing in our confrontation and battle to figure out what truth is, is exactly what Jesus experienced 2,000 years ago. He was in a very similar situation. And that was the story of when Jesus was taken to appear before Pilate, a politician. So we're going to go to Matthew 27. So if you want to turn to Matthew 27, we're going to read portions of Scripture from Matthew 27. We'll also have it on the screen. But in Matthew 27, we read the story of Jesus appearing before Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor of Jerusalem. He was a politician. He was sent by Rome, by Caesar, to go and keep the peace in Jerusalem. Now, because the Jews were people that believed in their very soul, in their bones, in their DNA, that they were not supposed to be governed by anybody but by God, they, whenever somebody tried to rule them, they always made it difficult for those people. They were, they were just good at making trouble for foreign rulers. And uh, so it was always tough to rule over Palestine. And they caused the Roman Empire lots of headaches. There were, every other week there was some insurrection. Every other week there was some rebel standing up wanting to lead the people into some revolution. And it didn't matter if they were just a few people because they believed God is on our side. And if, you know, if Gideon with 300 can, can conquer an army of thousands, then we can do it. So they, they were no fear. They would consistently just cause problems for Jerusalem, uh, for Rome. So when Caesar put a, a, a person over a governor, as a governor over Jerusalem, he normally chose a military man. A person that knew how to keep order. And so Pontius Pilate's number one job and function was, you just keep those Jews under control. You just make sure that there's no rebellions and uprisings and wars, because if it starts there, it spreads from there, so you've got to keep them quiet. And he knew that he just had to keep the peace, keep things orderly in Jerusalem. But one day he's confronted with a really difficult situation. There's this man, Jesus Christ, who's been going around Israel 
in upsetting the Jewish leaders. So finally, they've had enough. They're fed up with Jesus. So they concoct a story and uh, work a process so that ultimately they present Jesus before Pilate and to say to him, this guy is saying that he's the king of the Jews. Now that word king of the Jews was particularly chosen by them because of its political overtones. You see, the, the Romans didn't want anybody Herod was the last king of the Jews, and they didn't want anybody to claim to be king. Because if the Jews had a king, then they become all the more motivated and powerful to try and overthrow the Roman government. So they squashed that whole idea very quickly. And uh, so when they said, this Jesus is saying he's the king of the Jews, they were saying, he's saying that he's going to overthrow your power, and he's going to become the power in Jerusalem. So he's going to cause you problems. So they used language to draw the Romans into their fight. So they bring Jesus to Pontius Pilate. So now Pontius Pilate sits with a problem. He's got a crowd whipped up by the Jewish leaders that are getting more and more rowdy. A potential rebellion is rising up. And all he can hear is Caesar's words is, you just keep the peace. And he's seeing this crowd. But on the other hand, he has this man, Jesus. And uh, for all his uh, investigations and all his trying to understand the situation, he cannot find that this Jesus ever claimed publicly to be the king of the Jews and was causing, uh, in in that sense, as they were saying, and that he was causing an insurrection, that he was not a troublemaker to them as Rome, as these guys were saying. He was actually finding more and more evidence to the opposite. So here he found himself in any politician's nightmare. How do I please the people and do what is right at the same time? And more and more, this situation was starting to look like it wouldn't be possible. And he was going to have to make a choice. And what would he do? How does he make a choice? So what I want to tell you and present to you is the story of how this unfolds. See, because God in his wisdom and in his grace and in his love for us brought it about that when he created this planet and he created us to live on it, that he built truth into this world. In such a way that even when we don't recognize Him, even then we don't honor God and we don't believe in God, truth is still evident in this world. Not completely, not perfectly, because you can never separate truth from God. But God, in His wisdom, built some truth so that we can live life on this planet. Romans speaks about that. In Romans... uh, Sorry, now... Where's my scripture? In Romans 1, verse 18, 19, and 20, it says the following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in righteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident for them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Paul writes and he says to us that God's truth is embedded in this world. If you just look at it carefully, and if you want to see it, you will see it. The scripture talks about how we don't want to see the truth, and therefore we don't see the truth. So truth is what this situation is about. As Pontius Pilate has Jesus before him, we read in, um, 
In verse 11, Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Just tell me the truth, please. Just so that I can make a decision. Are you saying that you are the king of the Jews? Just tell me, please. Just give me evidence that I can make a verdict here. Tell me, what is the truth? Are you the king of the Jews? And the governor, so the governor asked him, and then Jesus, in his wonderful way, is not being helpful. Jesus didn't come to live on earth to make politicians' lives easy. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? What does Jesus answer? Whatever you say. If you say so, then I am. If you don't, then I'm not. It is as you say. You have said so. You, just, you, you must say. He say, listen, I'm brought on trial here. This is the claim against me. It's you. You must decide. Am I the king of the Jews or am I not? It's your decision. And then he keeps quiet. We read on. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? Don't you see all the stuff they're saying? If you just speak up, it'll really help me so that I can decide. And I can convince them that you're not this troublemaker that they say you are. But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge to the great amazement of the governor. Have you ever been in a situation where people are making false accusations and claims against you? Whenever I've been in a situation like that, man, I speak up. (laughs) Jesus keeps quiet. He says nothing. Why? Why is he keeping quiet? Well, firstly, he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7, where it said the following, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, So he did not open his mouth. Why? Why is Jesus keeping quiet in that moment? Because he's working towards something. But to to work towards that something, he has to allow truth to be on trial. And so he's not helpful. He says, I'm not going to say anything. You ought to decide. So now Pilate is left with a conundrum. He's... On the one hand, this man that he thinks is innocent. On the other other hand, a crowd that is shouting for this man to be executed and crucified. So he says, okay, I'm going to do something. Normally, as I see it, when God established truth in this world, there's three legs that he made that truth to stand on. Now, I've done enough studies to say it's only three legs, but in this situation, there are three legs that truth stands on. Natural truth that which is inherent in this world. And for Pilate to make a decision what to do, he was going to deal with the truth from one of those three legs and take those three legs and try and support the truth as he saw it by those three legs. For the crowd to have their way, they have to kick over those three legs. They have to remove the three legs. The first leg that truth is based on in this world is what I would like to call reason. Reason. The ability to look at something and to see the, the cause and effect, the natural consequences of things, to see the reason, common sense. You can sometimes call it part of it, reason. Let me explain to you in this situation how it worked. 
In verse 15, verse 219, it says, Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, Which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? For he knows it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So he says, Okay, I don't want to make this choice because whatever decision I make, I'm going to, I'm going to be in trouble. So I'm going to let the crowd make the decision. And I'm going to present to them two options, that if they reasonable people, any reasonable people will choose the reasonable choice. The, the reasonable, the two things he puts before them is, on the one hand, he says, yes, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, a man who fed the thousands, a man who healed the sick, who raised the dead, a man who just showed kindness to people, a man that stood up for his people, a man that I can find no guilt in. I cannot find this man as a troublemaker, on the one hand. On the other hand, I give you his opposite, Jesus Barabbas. Now, Jesus Barabbas was imprisoned because he was a murderer. He uh, was a part of a group of people that uh, wanted to cause problems and, as a, and, and, and was always leading towards rebellion. And was always trying to stir up a rebellion in the Jewish people. So one of the ways they did it was at feasts, at special times, when there were lots of people together, they would walk around and look for leaders, either Roman leaders or Jewish leaders. And uh, they had these little knives that they would carry them, little daggers, sharp-pointed daggers. And if they, if they would find a leader that they could, they would go and assassinate him, stab him in the crowd, and then disappear into the crowd and just kill the person. It was a, a group of people, uh, Josephus called them the Sakari. So in the scripture, the different descriptions in the different gospels, or he's mentioned in all four gospels, is terrorist, insurrectionist, murderer, thief. So this guy was a bad guy. According to all things in Jewish law, he was set aside as an evil person. Evil person. So Pontius Pilate says, it's my habit that on the great feast, at the great feast, I give you a choice. You can let somebody go. Here you have Jesus, the healer, the Messiah, wonderful guy. Here you have Jesus, terrible guy. Did you notice they both their names were Jesus? I'll say something about that now. He's a murderer, a thief. Your law condemns everything he does. It's a reasonable choice, people. Which one do you want me to set free? Guess who they chose. They didn't do the reasonable thing. You see, because in most societies, in most people in our homes, you don't have to be a Christian to understand that to have a good life, you promote goodness and you punish evil. Discourage evil. But here the crowd says, crucify Jesus and give us Barabbas. Set him free. They kicked over the leg of reason. And they do the unreasonable thing. Now the historical point here is very interesting that the choice in name was so close. Jesus, Bar Abbas, the, it's the Hellenization of the Aramaic word Bar Abba, which means son of. Jesus, son of. Jesus, Bar Abbas. Or Jesus, the Christ, Jesus, the son of God. I don't know if they knew this, but he was literally saying you can choose between Jesus, the Son of God, the healer, the Messiah, or Jesus, the Son of the liar, the, the, the murderer, the destroyer. 
you choose. And they did the unimaginable thing. They chose that a murderer would be set free rather than Jesus. Why? What makes the people do that? It tells us in the scripture. For he knew it was out of self-interest that they handed Jesus over to him. You see, this crowd wasn't really interested in truth. They weren't really interested in what is the right thing. They were interested in what served their need the best. The Jewish leaders knew the people. They knew how to whip up the people. They knew what the interests of the people were. So they used scare tactics and lies and fake news and everything to scare up these people and to get them to support their agenda. Their agenda which was unlawful, their agenda which was terrible in every level and in every way, false, a lie, everything, but they just got the crowd on their side through playing to the self-interests of people. Self-interests is a dangerous thing. Think about our times. Are we a people in this country that can move beyond our own self-interests and not push for what serves me the best, but what serves us the best? Unfortunately, in our politics today, with the way politicians do it, they've learned to play the game of self-interest. They speak to different groupings, self-interests, and they'll play them up against each other and polarize people. And they'll use various tactics to, f to fan into flame the frenzy of self-interest. You see, because when my self-interest is left unchecked, I will do anything to have what I want. Things like greed, lust, are forms and expressions of self-interest that have been left unchecked. I remember reading a book years and years ago of con artists. And in the book, they made this statement. They said, there's one type of person you can never con out of their money. A person who has no greed. You cannot con them out of their money. Because if you put something before them, like, listen, if you do this, I'll give you this. You know, like all of us have received those letters from that West African country where I know some of you come from and we love you and we appreciate you and we know you don't send those letters. But you know those letters. How many of you have received a letter like that? And if you haven't, can you put up your hand if you haven't received a letter like that? You would be a unique person. You're probably not on any digital platform whatsoever. Because I, I don't know, but they love me. They send them to like every month. I, you know, and can I be honest with you? Can I have a moment of transparency here? Are you okay? Are you ready for this? Can I go for it? When I get one of those, there's always this thought that comes into my mind. Perhaps this is true. <laughs> Not you. I know you never... You know, because they always do that thing. I send you the letter and then they say, if you, if you send us your email address, and then we will help you in the process and you can, you've inherited the queen's billions and you know, all of that stuff. Hey, but the queen's still alive. Never mind. And uh, you know, and you, but you think perhaps, you see, because there's this little, there's little self-interest in us and sometimes it manifests as greed. And I think, hmm, perhaps I can get something I don't really deserve, but you know, it's God's blessing. God's favor upon me. Self-interest is very powerful. 
I mean, we've, we can, we all, we've all seen people when lust grabs hold of a person and they, and, and they come to that point where they don't care what is right and wrong anymore. They don't care who it hurts or not. They just need to do something to satisfy their need. Because lust is a very powerful form of self-interest. And we all have it. So if, if, if a leader or a person can just come and they scratch in those places where your self-interest gets stirred up. They can get you to do unreasonable things. There's things around now like micro-targeting in advertising. You know, they can read your social media profiles and then they start in its, in its most benign form. Have you ever done this? You go online and you search. You want to go to Mauritius on a holiday or something and you type in flights to Mauritius. Have you noticed from that point on every time you open a website or Facebook, there's adverts because they've picked up the, uh, the, the, the logarithms, what are those? They're, they're very clever. Algorithms, that's the word. Thank you, Sean. Or Herman, both of you, thank you. The algorithms are so clever. So they can start reading us, and the way they just go is to your self-interest. Just feed your self-interest. And we must watch out for that. We must watch out. First of all, to ourselves, that our self-interests aren't running around unchecked. And then when it comes to the big decisions we make, that we say, Lord, I don't want to choose just what is right for me. I want to choose what is right according to your will. And sometimes what God wants is not the best for me, but it is what he wants. And can I submit to that? So, so the first leg that truth stands on is reason. The second one is conscience. In verse 19, while Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. We all have a conscience. Every person that is on this planet has a conscience because we all have a sense of some things are right and some things are wrong. I'm not saying your conscience is perfect and you can always trust your conscience, but it's there. For us as Christians, we believe the best conscience is a conscience that has been informed and submitted to the Word of God. When the Word of God informs my conscience, then my conscience moves beyond self-interest and beyond my culture and beyond what I have been grown, brought up to believe, and my conscience actually moves to a very powerful place where it helps me. It's, I, I cannot trust it on its own, but it, it's one of those things that helps me move towards the truth. And when God made us, he said, I'm going to give you a conscience. So even if you don't have me, even if you don't have your, my spirit's voice in you, you'll have a voice that will draw you towards truth. It's your job to make sure that that truth is really truth, but it will draw you towards truth. So often our conscience speaks through our dreams, doesn't it? Have you had a dream of conscience? Have... So Thursday night, Pilate is at home with Mrs. Pilate. Flying their plane. That's a bad joke. That's really terrible. The two of them just at home, you know, having what Roman governors have to eat and watching a little bit of sport or something on television. And uh, he gets a phone call and he says, excuse me, honey. And he goes and takes a phone call and the phone call says, listen, we've got a crisis. There's this situation brewing. These Jewish leaders are here. They want you to judge on this guy. And uh, you have to come in early tomorrow morning because you have to make a decision about this. So he goes back and he says, listen, sorry, honey. I know we had breakfast plans tomorrow, but I've got to go into the office early. You sleep in. The slaves will take care of you. I'm going to, you know, I've got to go to the office. I've got this thing to do. And he tells her and this is guy and whatever. So they go to sleep. 
So early morning, he gets up, he leaves, she's still asleep, kisses her on the cheek, off he goes to work. He's a nice guy, Mr. Pilot. Loves his wife. So he goes off to work, and now he's sitting in the trial and trying to figure out, this is like, what the heck's going on here? How do I decide what to do? So, uh, you know, while he's busy in an important meeting, he gives his phone to the assistant. The assistant has now got his phone. Then the phone rings, and the assistant looks, and it's Mrs. Pilot. The caller ID says, honey. <laughs> so he looks at the phone, and, he's, and the assistant goes, what do I do now? I know he doesn't want to be disturbed, but the last time I didn't tell him, and he forgot to buy milk on the way home. He, I was, he nearly killed me, so what do I do? So eventually he says, ah, and he runs in, and he says, sorry, sorry, sir, sorry to disturb you, but it's your wife. You know, and when your wife phones, you answer. Hey? Amen. So he picks up the phone, he says, excuse me, guys, just, just hold that thought, and he, yes, honey, I'm busy, can you just tell me what's going, what, what? And she starts telling him this dream, and she says, you've got to get out of there. This man is innocent. Do not do this. Do not condemn him. The voice of conscience speaks to him. He puts the phone down, and now he goes, mm, yes, like it. Now, my wife is going to be unhappy with me if I make the wrong decision. This crowd is going to get unruly if I make this wrong decision. If I make the wrong decision, an innocent man is going to be, die a horrible death. What do I do? So the second leg that truth stands on is conscience. But this crowd is not into conscience. You see, and so often as a leader, this becomes a really difficult situation. Good leaders, before they have a conscience, they have something else. They have what we call consciousness. And particularly political leaders, you'll not go far as a politician if you do not have political consciousness. Political consciousness is the ability to understand the needs of people, to read the people, to know what's on their minds, to know what to say so that you win their loyalty. It's to know how to read situations. And normally politicians are really good at that. They're very good. They have a, a political consciousness. They can read. Mm, this is what they really want. But if you only have consciousness, you'll play to the crowd. You won't necessarily do the right thing. And you'll do the popular thing. Consciousness takes you a step further. Where you know what the people want, but you then take it into a space of what is right. Not just what the people want. And those two things are very difficult in a democratic society particularly to bring together. But we've had a leader that we all can... Remember the 1995 World Cup where President Mandela displayed his great political consciousness by knowing the needs and the fears and the concerns of a nation. He knew how device, divisive the Rugby World Cup was in 95. He knew that that was a moment and he read in the nation that this was going to causing unhappiness in, in certain sections while others were really excited about this and that there was a potential here that we're going to completely miss each other and this will actually become a volatile point that will drive us apart as a nation. But that was consciousness. And then he stepped further into what we call conscience. And he said, I cannot just allow this to happen. So I'm going to take a big, bold risk I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to risk all my political capital that I have. I'm going to risk probably, possibly being misunderstood by my own people. But I'm going to do something. 
And he did a very simple thing. He put on a green number six rugby jersey. And he went to that game that day. And in that moment, he stepped over all of the fears and the concerns and the hurt. I'm not saying it solved everything, but in that moment, he, he rose above it. And through conscience, he drew us together as a nation. And a beautiful moment happened. And it probably was a nation, a, a, a key moment after the voting of, that we celebrated yesterday on the 27th. That was the follow-on moment that just solidified that sense of hope and democracy a little bit further as a whole nation. And suddenly this man that was imprisoned became our leader for all of us. Great consciousness. But here Pilate was in the same position. What do I do? He read the conscious, he had the consciousness to understand the fears, the, fight, the, 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 the concerns. But did he have the conscience to do something, to help? We carry on. The third leg, so the first two is reason, consciousness. The third leg, that truth stands on, that God put truth in so that it will help us come to truth and find our way towards truth, is law. When reason and conscience come together, there's law that is established, particularly what we would call natural law. Natural law is specifically this. It's the law of God that is evident even when you do not believe in God. Don't you think God is amazing? That he says, even if you reject me, I'm still going to give you the opportunity to find at least some measure of good in life. And he builds these things in for us. Because ultimately, it would help us come back to him. Because hopefully we will recognize that we're living a shadow of what we could really be having. And he also knew that it, we're not going to get it right. But he still does it. He puts it there. So natural law. And he establishes this law. So the third leg that Pontius Pilate was confronted by was the law. And we see it in verse 27. So, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you, asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate asked that question, why? What, what has he done? What crime has he committed? That was a legal question. That was a question saying, you need to give me a proof here. Because you see, one of the self-evident truths that we have in our, in our lives is that you're innocent until proven guilty. That you cannot just hold a person guilty unless... We know that that person has is a process that has established the guilt of that person. Particularly not if you're going to do something as terrible to the person as what they were proposing. They were not saying, just tell him to stop it. They were not saying, just lock him up for a couple of days. He'll get, you know, so that he get, hears the message and can stop these nonsense. They were saying, take him, torture him to an inch of his life. Beat him humiliate him. You see, crucifixion was designed to be the most painful death that a person could die, to most be the most humiliating death, to be such a deterrent that nobody would want to do anything that puts them foul of the possibility of being crucified. I mean, 
in, in societies today that, that put people to death and death penalties, they do try and do it in a, in a way at least that, that causes that person the least amount of pain. This was the opposite. This was the most pain they could think of to give a person. And then they killed him. So Pilate says, if you want me to do this to this person, you need to give me a reason. You need to give me proof, something that holds up, that, that will make me feel I did the right thing. What is the crowd's response? Do they say, okay, let's go through the case again. Here's these witnesses. Here's these stories. Here's this, these, this evidence. Here's this recording. Here's this you know, eyewitness. Here's, here's the burden of proof that, that tells you we have no option but to do this. If we don't, we're putting society in danger. Here's the burden. No. What do they do? But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. All they did was shout louder. Have you seen that happen in our day? When truth is on trial, we, we don't do it in public meetings and in squares and in courtrooms so much as we do it on social media. As we do it in other platforms, we just shout louder. Crucify him. Crucify him. I mean, this week I was reading a news article and I followed some of the comments. It's always interesting to do that. It was a Christian article. And as I was reading through some of the comments, I came to a comment of a person who challenged the Christian view quite strongly. But no funny language or anything, just, you know, how can you say this because of this? Just challenge the Christian view. The next comment was a person defending the Christian view, but with language that no Christian should ever utter. <laughs> I mean terrible language. Just hatred. You see, because the Christian found themselves cornered and they didn't know how to continue the conversation. So they do what so many people do. They just started bullying. They just used language and emotion to bully a person instead of try and bring truth. And it happens all the time. That instead of us seeking truth, because of self-interest and because we've kicked our conscience to the curb long ago, we just shout louder. So Pontius Pilate eventually ends up in a situation where reason, law, uh, conscience, and law is not helping him. And he's got to make a choice. Because he knows if he doesn't give this crowd what they want, he's going to end up in Siberia somewhere, looking after some Roman outpost, or be executed, or something. He's going to become Julius Caesar, Augustus's uh, uh, dog keeper, or something. There's like no political future for him. Or... He's going to have to kill this innocent man. What does he do? In verse 24, when Pilate saw what he was getting, that he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. Wow, what a leader. What a champion. What a guy. He just said, I'm not going to make this decision. I'm not going to get caught up in this. You do what you want to do. It's your, it's, your, it's your business. How many of you know we don't need leaders like that? We need leaders that have reason, conscience, and law, and that are committed to those things, ultimately to truth, to say, even when the crowd is against me, 
Even if it's not the popular thing to do, I'm going to work very hard to convince them. I'm going to, I'm going to do everything so that we do the right thing. But not Pontius Pilate. All the people answered in these amazing words, His blood is on us. His blood is on us. A terrible statement. It's okay. You kill him. We'll take responsibility for it. They didn't care. Just wanted him gone. But this, this, these words, his blood is on us, is the whole reason why Jesus has kept quiet up until this point. He was allowing it to get to that point. Because remember I said it? The cross didn't happen to Jesus. The cross happened because of Jesus. He could have got himself out of that situation any moment. If he couldn't convince them because of the evidence he could give, he could have just called the angels and said, listen, just take care of this nonsense. He was the, the army, the captain of the army of the Lord. He could have dealt with this, but he kept quiet for this very reason, so that you and I today can echo these words. His blood is on us. Not in the sense of we are guilty of his murder in that we made the choice, but let me tell you, it is our sin that caused him to be crucified. This crowd, I can look at them and say, what a terrible crowd. But can I be honest with you? I'm part of that crowd. Because if I'm not part of that crowd, if I'm not part of that which, which ultimately led to this, then his blood is not on me. His blood is on me. Aren't you thankful for that? His blood is on us. He has forgiven us. He has washed us. That very crowd, when they said his blood is on us, Later that day, his blood would be spilt to wash them clean, to forgive them. And then they carried on and they said, his blood is on us and on our children. Praise God, his blood was spilt not just for that generation, but for every generation to follow. But another perspective to look at that is to say, when we don't choose the right thing, if we don't follow the truth, it's often not our generation that pays the price, but it's the next generation. The problem flows down the generations. So we need to be people that take great care. Take great care to say, Lord, I want your truth. Now, as Christians, we know that truth is not a doctrine. Truth is not a Statement, truth is not a philosophy, truth is not a religion. What is truth? Truth is a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth is a person. Truth is Jesus Christ. If you want to know the truth, ultimately you have to get to Jesus. You have to come into relationship with Jesus. And this is where Jesus was so amazing. He allowed, and God the Father and the Holy Spirit allowed that day, truth to be crucified so that we can be restored to Him. The highest good for God is not truth in and of itself. It's truth that leads to relationship. Ultimately, what God wants is that we get restored into right standing with Him, that we get into relationship with Him. And God even allowed that truth would be sacrificed that day, so that you and I can be restored to God. Now, as children of God that live in this day and age, can I just make this application and I'm finished? 
We must be lovers of the truth. We must live our lives to use every faculty that we have to be people of reason, people of conscience, and people of the law. To be people, and, and when we pray for leaders for our nation, is it okay that we pray for leaders that have common sense? Because every leader that we're going to get is not going to be a Christian. And sometimes you have a Christian and they're still not a good leader. But can we have leaders that are people of conscience, people of, of reason, people that are committed to the law, that, that are, and, and in those things are saying they want the truth. They want what is right and what is good. And may we as a Christians be the salt and the light in this nation that helps form this nation's, this nation's understanding of what is right and what is wrong, and what is good and what is evil. May we be that salt and light, and may we draw people to the truth, but may we always do it in a way that draws people towards Jesus and relationship with Jesus. Because the scripture says, speak the truth in love. And I know sometimes you have to say truthful things and it can, and it can cause division and it can cause people for a time to, to separate. And, and, and that sometimes happens. But I think as it must, it's our responsibility to work hard as Christians to say we want to bring the truth in a way that draws people into relationship with God. Closer to God. Because ultimately Jesus died not so that the truth can be published but so that people can know Him. Now the way to know Him is by the truth. You cannot separate those two. And please don't understand, I'm saying we compromise the truth. I'm not saying that at all. We stand for the truth so that people can know Jesus. They can know a Messiah, the Son of God that died. And I think as Christians in this time in our nation, let's be people of truth and people of love. And let's work hard to bring those things together, to unite our nation, to unite our people. There's enough reasons for us to be divided. But I believe it's the body of Christ that is uniquely positioned to not become afraid and anxious and be filled with self-interest and to continue and perpetuate the, the story of separation, but that can pull through our prayers and through our actions and through our, through our love and through our standing for truth that can pull together and hold this nation in its beautiful place. And so that God's will can be done. Stand with me. You have the freedom. God-given freedom. Hard-fought freedom in this nation. To live out your political convictions the way you want to and never want to interfere with that. Honor and respect that. I was asked to go pray at a, a political party's gathering to lead a time of prayer with them. And I said, I cannot do that. I cannot go. And if you could welcome to come to us and pray with us. But I cannot seem to be representing one party above others. I cannot. Because it's us. And in this congregation, we have everybody, all the political colors you can think of. But can we do it in a, in a way that says, Lord, I'm seeking truth above all your truth. And I'm seeking you and your will for this nation. Check our own heart, Lord, that I'm not doing unreasonable things, that I'm not going against conscience. 
and that I am keeping law, natural law and the law of our nation in the right place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. Thank you for a people, a community, this beautiful community, that just by us being here today, so diverse in our ethnic cultural representations, is a, is a visible representation of the power of the gospel. But I pray, Lord, that you'll take us deeper and further into you. And I pray, Lord, that we will know how to be a voice in this time. As a community together and each of us individually, wherever you send us this week, wherever we go, whatever conversation you send us into, Lord, may we take your word with us. May we be a place of hope, of strength, of peace, of joy, of truth. For our friends and our neighbors and our families, Lord. Let us be salt and let us be light, I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we lift up our nation to you, Lord. And we say, Lord, have mercy and grace on us. We don't deserve your goodness, Lord, but we ask because you have given us permission and you have told us to ask. We ask that you would come. And that you would continue with the miracle of South Africa and that the miracle of South Africa would move forward into its next phase so that your kingdom can be manifest here in our midst. Thank you, Lord. We love each other because we love you. And nothing is going to change that, Lord. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name. I've gone... A bit, quite a bit over time, forgive me for that. But if you need prayer this morning, if your heart's unsettled in any way, if you want to talk to somebody, please come to the front as we end the service. We have baptism happening in the uh, function hall. You can go out that way and we have, hey, we have baptism. Sorry, people being baptized, that's ready there to receive you in baptism. Maybe if you're a new visitor, come and spend some time with us. The Lord bless you. Have a fantastic day. Have a great week. Continue to pray for our nation. And uh, just walk in the grace and in the presence of God. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys.